Amen. We come now to Nahum chapter 3, which we read a moment ago. And we've been in this journey for a, a month now through Nahum. Uh, the prophet Nahum is a small but important book. We've said that over and over again. It's a, a great book, a neglected book, an unjustly neglected book. We find the prophet Nahum, whose name means comfort. We recognize that uh, he is one who brings comfort. He brings comfort not so much to Assyria and Nineveh, the enemies, as he does to the people of God who have languished underneath the burden, if you will, of the dominion of Assyria, who has uh, been so terrible to not just Judah, but all the nations of the earth that were in their grasp. So this is good news for Judah. That is how this is presented to us, and it is good news, that there is some vindication of the people of God and there is some judgment against the enemies of God is good news. And the Bible makes this very clear. Assyria has long been a problem for the people of God. We've tried to detail this not only in this journey of Nahum, but also in the journey through Jonah, that Assyria has long been a thorn in the side, if you will, and maybe much worse than that. A real problem, a real uh, detriment to the people of God in terms of their faithful worship as a covenantal people, but also the vicious, if you will, attacks of of Nineveh and Assyria whenever Assyria was not pleased. So over and again we've seen this happen. You know, think about it, some 80 years before this, the northern kingdom of Israel had been overthrown by the Assyrians. It was a violent and and terrible occasion, but it was one brought about by God as a judgment upon this wicked kingdom of Israel. And much like what Habakkuk struggles with, how can you use a more evil people like the Assyrians to judge us in our evil? Well, The question that he had later was, how do you use the Babylonians or Chaldeans who are far more wicked than we are to judge us in our wickedness? And God says, it's because I will to do it that way. And in the end, know that they too will be judged for their wickedness. So God is working in all these ways. And the scripture shows us this over and over again. Excuse me. So what is the point here? Nahum is raised up long after the prophet Jonah has come to the scene and said, that God would overthrow Nineveh and the people repented of their sin and turned unto God, cried out to God in repentance, and he saved Nineveh for a time. Now Nahum comes to say, time has run out. The iniquity of Nineveh is full. The iniquity of the Assyrians is full. And now Assyria's days are numbered. So we've seen it kind of in this way. And some people say, oh, the book of Nahum is so repetitive. Well, it deals with judgment, so in that sense, I guess it is repetitive, but each chapter is accomplishing something different. The reason that they put the chapters about where they did was to say, to recognize what the Word of God was already doing, which was to, first of all, speak of the might of God. We looked at chapter 1, the might of God, who is marching out against Nineveh, marching out against Assyria, who has, as the the clouds are like the the footsteps of him, the, the dust off his feet, right, as he walks. Remember some of that amazing... Uh, language and imagery that's used. The, the earth trembles before him. The mountains remove themselves and flatten themselves in his way. God is almighty. The earth knows it, even if the king of Assyria does not. But God is coming to bring judgment upon this wicked people. Well, chapter 2, which we looked at two weeks ago, doesn't restate that so much as say, let's give you now the specifics of how it will come about. So chapter 2 is really a prophetic foretelling of the events that will bring the fall of Nineveh. You may remember the things that are said there. The army encircles. The the waters bring the wall down. And We talked about how historians have 
captured or recorded. That's exactly what happened. And then all the things that Nineveh had done to others, that the Assyrians had done to others. Remember, Nineveh is not just the greatest city of Assyria. It's its capital city by this time. So when you speak of Assyria, you can speak of Nineveh. Nineveh kind of represents Assyria in a sense. So you're saying not only the literal city, but it's also speaking now of the Assyrian people. As you have done to others, so it shall be done to you. You will reap what you've sown. What does he mean? Well, you've put people to terror. Now you'll be put to terror. You've besieged people. Now you'll be besieged. You've plundered people. Now you'll be plundered. And some people say, well, isn't that what chapter 3 is about? Kind of. Kind of. Chapter 3 is actually a woe. Starts right that way. Most English translations start with the word woe here. Because this is a woe. It's a formal pronouncement of judgment. You might think about it in, in our legal system as like a charging statement. right? If you've been charged with a crime, there's an official charging statement made. This is God's official charge against Assyria. And so we want to look at it today. And I'm not going to read the whole thing right now. We'll kind of look at parts of it as we go. It's a long passage. But I want us to look at three main points today. First of all, the final declaration. Second of all, a reasonable comparison. And third, the certain outcome. So beginning first with the final declaration, we see that because God offers a woe here. And woe is almost always a word that, you know, accompanies great judgment, doesn't it? Woe to this people. Woe to this nation. Woe to this city. Woe to these people. Woe to the scribes and Pharisees. It means the judgment of God is near at hand. Woe is always the language of judgment. And we see it here. There is a formal woe against Nineveh. And in this way, also against Assyria. Assyria makes it very short time after Nineveh falls. We talked about this. They, they try to go uh, even further to the east and pull away, but Babylon pursues them and conquers them just a few years later. They're pretty much wiped out forevermore. They're never a nation again. But as we come to this, I want you to look at the wording that's used. Woe to you, or woe to the bloody city. It might be, woe to you, a bloody city, or woe to the bloody city, but Either way, it's saying the same thing. Nineveh is a city of much blood. Much blood. What does he mean? He means when you come to Nineveh, you see a great and grand city. Walls that are impressive and amazing to behold. You see buildings that are amazing, would dazzle you. You see monuments. You see all these great things that you see in any great city. But God says, I don't see that when I look upon Nineveh. When I look upon Nineveh, I see the blood of men. Because everything Nineveh has was built upon the blood of others. Everything they have, they took after murdering people, wiping out entire peoples. That is how they gained their wealth. That is how they built their nation. That is how they literally built the city of Nineveh. If they didn't have a resource they needed, they thought, who can we kill and conquer to get it? And that's what they did. So when it says here, woe to the bloody city, in the Hebrew it means the city of much and many blood. In fact, the blood is plural, bloods. A city that is built upon the blood of many people. So you see immediately there's a charge that Nineveh and the Assyrians are a violent people. That's not new to us, is it? That's been the argument all through Nahum and all through Jonah. These were a wicked and violent people who everyone hated. Now if you look here as you continue, he begins to lay out some more charges. And this is a little bit of a confusion for Scholars, they say when it goes to the noise of the whip, 
the noise of the rattling wheel, of the galloping horses, of the clattering chariots, horsemen charged with bright sword and glittering spear. Is this another pronouncement like chapter 2 of what will happen to Babylon? Or is this, excuse me, what will happen to Nineveh? Or is this a charge against Nineveh? Now, I don't really think you have to choose here. Because the reality is, what has been done by Nineveh shall now be done to Nineveh. That's the entire point of chapter 2. So if this is happening to them, it's only because they've done it to others. But I believe if you want to be very literal about it, this is a charge against Nineveh. This is what Nineveh has done. They have been known for the noise of their whip. They've been known for the noise of rattling wheels, of galloping horses, of clattering chariots. They have been the ones who brought horsemen to charge with sword and spear. They are the ones who have slain a multitude, a great number of bodies, countless corpses. They stumble over the corpses. So many bodies, you can't walk without tripping. You can't ride a horse without the horse stumbling. That's the legacy of Nineveh. Now, why do I believe that it's speaking directly about Nineveh here? For two reasons. First of all, because he's just described them as a bloody city. He's laying out for them the blood that they have let. The reason that he can call them a bloody city, it's because they have been a people whose victims never departed, a people who slew everyone that came in their way. Any place they thought that they could get advantage, they killed them. And the second reason is because, as he talks about here in verse 4, he says, because. Why has all this happened? Because of the multitude of harlotries. Now, we're going to come back to that. In other words, the harlotries of Assyria has what's led to all of this bloodshed. Well, it's not the harlotries of Assyria that has directly led to Assyria being attacked, but it is why they went out. We'll talk about this in just a moment. Be patient there if you can on that, because it's an important point. We'll come back to it, and it's a theme throughout the Scriptures. But again, the point here is you're a violent people. You've gone out warring, and now it's come back to you. There's an old saying, right? The chickens have come home to roost. Right? What you've done to others now is coming back to you, or the Bible says you'll reap what you sow. That's what's happening. But if you go beyond that, notice what it also says there at the very beginning of the chapter. It gives another charge. It is full of lies and robbery. It's an entire civilization built upon lies. The lies of how great Assyria is. The lies of how noble its kings are. Ashur Benapal, the current king at this time, uh, portrayed himself as the greatest man in the world. He was not. He was a wicked and evil, degenerate man. But again, it's a society built on lies, as all these societies are. Babylon, built on lies. All of these cultures, built on the lies that their gods have given them favor and raised them up. Assyria is no different. But notice also, we come back to the charge that's already been given many times. Robbery. Robbery. This word here is kind of an important word. It's perek in the Hebrew. It means to pillage or to plunder. In fact, if you have an ESV or, a, or an NASB, it may say pillage or plunder. But the idea here is it's robbing from others, isn't it? It's pillaging. It's taking what is theirs. It is robbing it from other people. Everything Assyria has didn't come from within its own borders. It came from what it took from others. If Assyria has gold, find out who they took it from. If they have Natural resources, it wasn't theirs. Where did they get it? Again and again, we see this. And so the point is, how have you built your city? You built it through violence, through lying, and through robbery, through pillaging other nations. And God says, it's now time for a reckoning. 
It's time for this to come against you. And the Lord says it here in this other charge that goes hand in hand with the deception. He says, because of the multitude of the harlotries of the seductive harlot, and your Bible may word that uh, even less delicately, but again, the idea here is even because of the multitude of sexual sins of this seductive temptress, some Bibles say the whorings of the subjective temptress. This is not language the Bible shies away from, right? It's saying here this picture of Assyria as a woman who is a seductress, who is a temptress, who is something like a prostitute. And this seems very strange to us because we say that's not how Assyria built its power. It didn't seduce other nations. It conquered other nations. It beat other nations down. But God, in the, speaking through the prophet Nahum, says, no, you haven't fully understood what happened? Because Assyria has been a great prostitute, a great seductress. She has been one who robs from others by giving them a lie, by selling them upon something. Now, if you want to think about this for a moment, I'd like to tell you Dr. Greg Cook is super helpful on this part of the text because it is a difficult part of the text. The Hebrew word here is zonah, and it means something like an immoral person who is unfaithful in sexual manners. That's the word at the heart of this uh, word that we're translating here. It's harlot or whore, prostitute, whatever word you want to see or it might say in your scriptures. That's what the word is here. And it's speaking of someone who is not faithful, one who would lure you into something that you shouldn't do. Now, this is a word that's used in Proverbs chapter 7. You all remember Proverbs 7, a warning proverb to young men about as they go past the seductress's house who stands on the corner and beckons you in to sexual temptations with her perfumed bed and her many-colored clothing and all this stuff that she says to him. Things like, my husband is away on business, come into my house. Right? This is dangerous language, the Bible tells us. And this same word is used in that text, zonah. It speaks of the way she dresses. She dresses like a woman who isn't faithful. She dresses like a woman who is sexually immoral. And so there's a warning here about such a person because she will try to lure you, and the Bible says not to sexual pleasure, but lure you even to death itself, to destruction. So already we see a connection here in this word that what Assyria has done is lured many into destruction, lured them, seduced them into destruction. Now we say, well, how exactly have they done this? Well, it might be helpful to look at another place that this language is used. And write this down if you don't have time to turn right now. 2 Kings 9.22, Yehu comes against Jezebel. He's looking for Jezebel. Again, a literal historical figure in the Old Testament, but also a woman who is symbolic, right? In biblical language and symbiology, she is a woman who's symbolic of a kind of woman or a kind of approach to things, a seductress, a one who is immoral, one who would seduce the people of God even to their own destruction. And in this, as... Yehu approaches, they yell out, is it peace? In other words, are you coming in peace or are you coming with arms? What's your approach? And here's what he answers. What peace as long as the harlotries of your mother Jezebel and her witchcraft are so many? Now, again, same root word. We might wonder for a moment, where does the scripture ever say, that Jezebel was charging people for relationships. 
There's no record of that. That's not what it's talking about, is it? What does he mean? She seduced the entire nation into infidelity against God. That's what this is about. As a covenant people, Jezebel has been like a prostitute who wooed them away from the relationship they're supposed to have with God toward other gods. All you have to do is read the age of idolatry in which we're talking about here, where the people are spiritually unfaithful to God. We see it over and over again. We see in this period of time, this is exactly what's happening. So again, there is a a use of language here that we need to note in the Scriptures that tells us that sometimes when this language of prostitute is used, it's used as someone who is attempting to draw the people spiritually away from God. Now, I'd have you think about Revelation, because we find there, right, the great prostitute who is Babylon, right, who rides upon the scarlet beast. And you might ask yourself, what's that image? What's that picture? Well, you don't have to figure it out. It's given to you in Nahum. The images of the kingdoms of this world at war against God, trying to pull the people of God into spiritual infidelity. It's built upon the image of Assyria. Now, Babylon is a different nation, and we'll come back to this at the end. But Babylon was just the same. A nation that tried to push its own ways, its own beliefs on the people of its day, as every age has people like this. But again, God says, no, you will be brought down. In fact, this language bothers people in this chapter. Maybe it bothered you as we read it. God says some some things that are maybe even shocking to us. He says, I will lift your skirts over your face. That's strong language. And many commentators think this is about the queen of Assyria. It couldn't be more clear he's talking about Assyria. He's talking about the nation. He's talking about the city of Nineveh. He will put them to shame. How did they put people to shame in the ancient world? They would often strip them and make them walk down the streets. They'd throw trash at them. It's the very thing described here. The Lord says, I will uncover you before the people and I will throw garbage at you. I will throw garbage at you. He's speaking to the nation, this nation that has wooed others. You admired admired Nineveh, huh? An impressive city with its great walls and its great buildings. They shall fall. You admired it because of its great wealth. It shall be plundered. You thought it was beautiful. It's not going to look beautiful for long. You thought they had great power. You admired Assyria. It's soon going to be brought down to the ground. You thought it was honored. No, it'll be brought low. So the point here that's made is God is going to reveal God is going to reveal Assyria for what it actually is. Now, if we were to go back and read the Old Testament and we want to look at these pictures, by the way, read Revelation, what will happen to the, the great harlot of, of Babylon, also exposed, also judged. What about Jezebel? You ever read through the scriptures and thought, my goodness, what end is this? Right? Thrown from a window. He who goes in to eat a meal comes back out. There's nothing left. The dogs have eaten her. And you think, what in the world is being described here? The exact same thing. That woman who looked so beautiful and alluring was the, the if you will, symbol of seduction away from God for the people of God has now been revealed in what she really is. And my friends, that's hard language. But God is trying to tell you how serious this is. He cares about His covenantal people. He cares about His own. He does not take lightly those that would lead His people astray. 
And sometimes it's given to us in very stark and violent language, as it is here. Nineveh will be exposed. You once looked upon Nineveh and were amazed. One day you will look on it no more. It's not just that you'll look upon it and be unimpressed. You won't even know where it was. It will disappear from the face of the earth. Assyrian civilization, so dominant for so many years, will disappear. Why? Behold, the Lord says, I am against you. I will bring judgment against you. And then I want you to look at what else he says. Because the people of God have proclaimed for a long time that there's been no comfort for them in their affliction under Assyria. But there is comfort, isn't there? Nahum's name means comfort. God is saying through his prophet, I haven't forgotten you. I will come and deliver you. I will be there at just the right moment to deliver you. But here's the question, who will bemoan Nineveh? Who will cry for Nineveh? Who will be sad for Nineveh? No one on earth will. No one on earth will. Again, you can make a parallel to Revelation, right? And the destruction of a city. So again, when you think about this, who will bemoan you? Where shall I seek comforters for you? God says, if I was willing to go to any place on earth to find comforters and bring them to you, where could I go? You've made enemies of everyone. You've made all the world hate you. Not one person will shed tears when they hear that Nineveh has fallen. Now, if we recognize here this final declaration of woe against them, the formal declaration and the reasons given for that, we also want to recognize a comparison because maybe Nineveh says we'll take our chances. You know, uh, The God of Israel has come against us before and we've beat him. Uh, don't forget, we came against the northern kingdom and destroyed them. Yeah, there was that little mishap when we came against uh, Jerusalem with Heze- in Hezekiah's day. But generally, we have a pretty good record against the people of God in defeating them in battle. We'll take our chances. After all, who can come against us? Our city is well defended. It's well situated. It's got walls, as we said, that would make Jericho uh, blush in comparison at how great our walls are. We have a river that protects us on one side. We have armies, numerous armies. And not just numerous armies, we have experienced armies. And that's important, isn't it? Armies that have fought in battle are braver. They know what to do. They don't get shaken as easily. They've been in situations before. Nineveh has been at war for hundreds of years. There's nothing its men have not seen. There's no experience that they've had that they have not Uh, been through so they will not be easily shaken and the king says look i have nothing to worry about we're fine no one can conquer this city i remember my great men my great soldiers of valor and i call them and they will stand in the day of battle armies have come against us before no army has yet defeated us and no army will now that's maybe something what the king is thinking but god brings a question to bear You know, you're not the first great city that's ever existed, right? I've mentioned in this journey, Jericho, how God brought those walls down. That isn't the example God gives. God gives a better example. He says to them, are you better than Noemon? Are you better than the city of Noemon? This is the city of Thebes. Some people argue the greatest city of the ancient world. Are you better than Thebes? which for something like a thousand years stood as the greatest city of Egypt. It had times of waning where 
they built elsewhere, but for a thousand years they built monuments and, and palaces and all sorts of things there. They built walls. They built a system. I was reading O. Palmer Robertson on this. They built a, a way of diverting the water of the Nile to flood the land around the city. So if they came into trouble, they could flood those fields that would take forever for them to drain, and you couldn't get to the city. Are you better situated than that, God is saying? Are you better situated than the city of Thebes, which all agreed was the greatest city and was unconquerable? Did it not have a river as you do? Was it not a greater river? Was the Nile River not greater than your river? And what about the waters that were around her? Probably a reference, I think, O. Palmer Robertson's getting to what we just talked about, the ability to flood the area around it. Were the waters around her not making her secure? Was her rampart not the sea? Was her wall not the sea? If you wanted to conquer Thebes, you had to go a great distance through the desert. Nothing there to sustain you. Just the heat beating down upon you. And if you made it to Thebes, then you're battling a city of refreshment. A city that's been behind walls, has plenty of water, plenty of food. You've been going through the desert for months. You're going to be ready to fight? Thebes counted on that for centuries. So you know the situation they were in. And you know they had allies. Look at the list he gives here. Ethiopia and Egypt were her strength. He says it was boundless. It has to do with the the numbers of soldiers that can be called upon. Has no end. Egypt could call upon as many as it wanted. Thebes could have called upon as many as it wanted. Put and Labim were their helpers. They could have called them at any time. As you went toward the city of Thebes, you could have been attacked and harassed all the way. And when you got there, you could have been surrounded yourself and fallen into a trap. Now, here's the point. Why is Thebes a good example to use here? Because it was the Assyrians that had recently conquered them. This was the greatest feat the Assyrian government had ever accomplished. They bragged about it. They said, it was us. We're the ones that brought low Thebes. We're the ones who carried them away and sent them into captivity. We're the ones that wiped out their young men. You can look at that terrible language in verse 10. My friends... This isn't God saying He's doing this uh, to the Ninevites. He's saying this is what you did to the Egyptians. You carried them into slavery. You killed their children. You did all these terrible things. And you've bragged about it. You said the city that no person could conquer, we have conquered. Well, aren't you just like Thebes now? You've gotten a little full of yourself. You think now it's your city that can't be conquered. But there's always... Somebody coming along, right? There's always another kingdom. There's always somebody else that's going to come along. Right? For the Assyrians, it was Babylon. For Babylon, it was the Medo Persians. For the Medo Persians, it was the Greeks. For the Greeks, it was the Romans. And so on, and so on, and so on, even to the modern day where nations rise and nations fall, and the scriptures say God raises them up and he brings them low. This is the way things work. Do not think you're any different, Nineveh. You've had your day in the sun. But now you've opposed the living God. And just like Thebes, your city will be brought low. If you think it can't happen, are you greater than Thebes? 
Your entire reputation is built off defeating Thebes. So my friends, recognize what God is saying here. You know this. You recognize that it has come to others and now it will come to you. In fact, as it comes to you, look at how it will be. In that day of battle, look at what it says. You also will be drunk. Now what's that a reference to? There's a little bit of debate about this. But it's interesting that oftentimes when the great nations fall, there's alcohol literally involved in it. Think about Babylon. Right? There's a night of revelry. Right? When the prophet Daniel is called for to interpret what does this handwriting on the wall means, they're drinking and it said, it says this, that this very night, right, you'll be judged and found wanting. This very night, your life will be accounted of you. It's not possible. The city of Babylon is the most secure city in the world. Yet another city that in one night falls like a stone. My friends, this is the record of Scripture. To those who would puff their chest against a holy and mighty God. And look at what he says. Not only will you be as drunk, you'll be hidden. You will seek refuge from enemies. Only here's the problem, right? You'd normally say you'll find refuge or you'll seek refuge amongst your friends. The problem is Assyria has no friends. So they're left to find refuge amongst enemies. That's kind of its own curse, isn't it? That you've got to turn to your enemies for help as you flee. There's nowhere to turn. And then probably the most vivid language we're given here, God giving us such a beautiful image of this, He says, all your strongholds, so in other words, all the towers in which you put your hope shall be like what? Fig trees with ripened figs. Now, that's not the whole picture. It says, that are shaken. What happens if you've got a ripened tree of fruit and you begin to shake it? What happens? It just falls. All the fruit just falls off. What he's saying here is your nation and your strongest cities are going to be like that. As soon as any force comes against them, you'll be plundered. You'll be plundered. My friends, this was said before it ever happened, but all these things came to pass. And it's not just you have to trust the Scriptures, although you should trust the Scriptures. We have the history books of secular writers to say this is exactly what happened. If there's ever an account that you can go to and just say, point upon point, this is accurate, it's right there. And so notice some other things that are said here very quickly that need to be remembered. It says, surely your people in your midst are women. That's not a slander against women. It's just simply saying your whole army will be as women. In the ancient world, you didn't want women guarding your gates, right? This was the traditional job of men to defend the city. Even to this day, we recognize this is something said throughout the Bible. So if you're offended by that, then you're offended by what the Word of God says. The Word of God says that it is the job of men to guard the city. That's just the way it is. And in this case, what we find is, he says, it'll be as if women are guarding your city. And he says, it'll be as if the gates of your land are wide open. Wide open. What does he mean here? All these gates you think are massive, you can't get in. He says they're going to be opened like it's nothing. People will just flood right into them. And... I want to make one final point here because he says, The end is near for you, as sure as it was for Noamon, for Thebes, so it will be for you. He comes to our final point this morning, which is the certain outcome. If you begin to look at the end of this chapter, you're going to begin to see this. God mocks them uh, through the prophet Nahum. He says what they need to do. He did this, obviously, in chapter 2 as well. But he says, Draw your water for the siege. What's one of the things that you had to do if you were getting sieged? You had to have a source of water. Hezekiah realized this in his day, didn't he? 
he had to have water if Jerusalem was sieged. In the same way, they will need water. So go draw your water, store it up, fortify your strongholds, get busy making your fortifications better. Go into the clay, and it literally means enter into the clay and tread the mortar. Get your clay ready to do what? To build more walls, right? Get the kiln stronger. Make it more durable so you can increase the heat and make more bricks. Build the walls. Build the walls. Build your defenses. Use your time well. But guess what? It won't make a difference. It won't make a difference. We're going to come soon to a psalm that says something we need to remember. Unless the Lord guards the city, the night watchman stays awake in vain. It doesn't matter what you've done to guard the city if the Lord is not with you. And this is the point that we get in the text. That there will be destruction, there is no end, and you will be eaten up like a locust. What did a locust do? Left a field where there was nothing left. That's what he says, it's going to be like that. You've multiplied your merchants more than the stars of heaven. You've built up an entire network of merchants. People who go out and do your bidding. People who are are bringing the wealth of the world into your city, and yet all of them will leave. You trust in your great commanders. And look at the vivid image he gives here of this. This is something they would have understood. Maybe it's not as fresh to us. But when it gets cold and the locusts are out, they get on the branches of the hedges, and they stay there. They're frozen. They don't move. And then the sun comes out and lights them up and warms them up, and they all fly off. He says, all these great generals you've been trusting in are going to be just like that. In the day of judgment, they are going to flee away. And just like you see these millions, maybe tens of millions of locusts all over the place, not moving, and then they fly away and you go, where could they have gone? Ten million locusts just disappeared. They flew off somewhere. He says, so that'll be your question of all your brave soldiers, all your great generals. You'll wonder, where did they go? And no one will know the answer. Then look at this last little part here. If we were doing another week, we could finish with just this one section and speak about the importance of shepherd imagery in the Old Testament leading into the New Testament. But he says, your shepherds, those who number your people, gather your people, care for and watch over your people, they're asleep. The same way Jonah was in a slumber and the ship, so they're in a slumber in this critical moment. Your nobles rest. Some of the new translations leave it right there. Your nobles rest. The New King James shows the way it's interpreting this by adding in, in the dust, meaning they're dead, right? That's what it means. Your nobles are dead. They're eliminated. Your people are scattered upon the mountains. They fled from the cities. They fled into the mountains, which is what you did. And no one gathers them. There's no shepherd left to gather them. There's no one to shepherd them and care for them. This is an image throughout the Old Testament, isn't it? A sheep without a shepherd. Jesus uses this himself. He looked upon them and had compassion upon them, for they were as sheep without a shepherd. In the Old Testament, the prophets often speak about Israel in its days of trial and its days of judgment as being as if a a pasture of sheep without a shepherd to care for them. So this is what will happen uh, to Nineveh and to Assyria. And then notice what else he says, because this gets down to it. Your injury has no healing. There's no coming back from this. This is a fatal, this is a mortal wound. Your wound is severe. But I want you to hear this at the end. All who hear news of you will clap their hands over you. 
all who hear it will rejoice, will clap when they hear that Assyria has fallen. For upon whom has not your wickedness passed continually? See, you've done wickedly to everyone for so long. You've made everyone your enemy. No one will have any sadness for you when you're gone. No one will say, oh, that's terrible. What they'll more likely say is, it's about time. And that brings me, my friends, to the conclusion here, because there's something important that we need to draw from this. We might say, well, why do we need to hear this? This was a prophecy that happened in the Old Testament of something that would happen in the age of the Old Testament, and it's already happened. Why do we need to know about this? What's the point for us? What have we been trying to get at it all this time? Well, first of all, it's a warning for all time of God's judgment against the enemies of God. Now, if it was just about Nineveh or Assyria, then I would have titled the front of your bulletin, A Woe to Nineveh, or A Woe to the Assyrians. But actually, I worded it a woe to the wicked because that's what's pictured here. The reason that the prostitute image comes back in Revelation is it reminds us of the judgment of God throughout all time against his enemies, against those who would attempt to lead his people astray. And so, my friends, when we look at this, we need to recognize that Nineveh was a city that was diametrically opposed to God, to God. And he brought his judgment. He brought his judgment against this city. And it's a battle that rages throughout time. There's three points I think we need to draw from this. Very simple points that we need to remember. Throughout biblical revelation, they come back again and again. First of all, that God will one day vanquish the forces of evil. We were talking about the line that I read earlier from the song. It reminds us there is a day where heartache and suffering ends. The Bible words it this way. There's a a day where every tear will be wiped away. There's a day where there will only be joy in the glory of God. And that is something the people of God are told to eagerly hold on to, to find it as an encouragement in valleys. I don't mean to make a shameless plug for our Wednesday night study, but when you look at that, oftentimes as they're going through their journey, the pilgrim's progress, what helps them through those difficult times? It's reminding themselves they're on their way to the celestial city, right? Hold on a little longer. We're weary, we're hurting, but hold on a little longer. It's coming nearer every step. My friends, remember, one day there is a day in which the enemies of God will be vanquished. Second of all, in that same way He delivers His people. It's not just that there will be a day with no more Diabolus or or whatever enemy, uh, giant Maul, right? Or giant hate good, whoever it is we want to make a comparison to in Pilgrim's Progress. It's not just there will be a day with none of them in your way any longer. But that God, through doing that, is bringing you actively to a place of rest and glory. So it's not just the defeat of your enemies, it's also the deliverance of you and all His people. And that He does it, this is my third point, He does it in an amazing way of bringing good news. It shouldn't surprise us now, when we go back and read chapter 1, that at the very beginning of this letter, the end of the first chapter, there is this reminder of good news coming, being brought across the hilltops, being brought into view in Judah, that the people of God can look up to the hills and see the messenger coming, and his shoulders are not slumped. He's not bringing bad news. That's the glorious thing that Isaiah is trying to tell us and Nahum are trying to tell us. You know the news you're getting before you get it, don't you? You have a loved one in the hospital and the doctor comes out 
You know before he opens his mouth if it's good news or bad news, don't you? From the way he looks at you, you know. From his demeanor, from his shoulders being slumped. Maybe his hands are in his pocket. It's something quite different when they come out with a big smile on their face, walking speedily towards you. The same thing then. When you saw your messenger come over the hill, you knew at a distance, did we win or did we lose? You knew. There's a little skip in his step if you won. There's despair if you lost. And what God is telling us in this word is, he brings us the message in the same way. Because the good news is brought to us with joy. If you are in Judah and you hear the Assyrians have been defeated, you're not like, well, that's, a, that's good. I guess that's good news. You're rejoicing. Right? There are times where the people of God rejoice that their enemies are vanquished. And God brings us the good news. And Paul takes this in Romans and says, this is just like the gospel. I'm going to piggyback Nahum and Isaiah and use this to say, God brings the good news to us in the exact same way. The forces of slavery and sin and death are overthrown. Your enemies are defeated. And now I bring deliverance to my people. And that's called good news. Good news. My friends, as you look at the entirety of Scripture, we don't want to miss the fullness of what's told to us. Right? There is a judgment that is coming. It's what the book of Revelation points to. It's what Scripture uh, points to over and over again. It is appointed for each to die and then the judgment. There is a judgment. But it's not just on an individual basis. It's also on nations and kingdoms as God vanquishes the kingdoms and forces of this world. My friends, the book of Nahum is as much to us today as it was to the people in Nahum's day. We need this book to remember who our God is and what he's telling us he will do. As Nahum could say, trust the word of the Lord, so I can say today, trust is fully the word of the Lord. God is battling for his people and praise him for it. Amen.